minister ladies here in our church. Thank you for your ministry over this time. And God has really used you to uh, move women forward in their growth in Christ. And one of the things that Sandy said to me every time we talked about um, her teaching a focus group or a Bible study, she said, now let me just say, there's a chance that we're going to be moving to Florida. And she would say that to me, and I would think, okay, maybe it won't happen. Maybe it won't happen. But God answered their prayer, and they are moving to Florida, and we are thankful with you. We hate to see you go, but we are thankful with you. John and Sandy will be heading that way in two weeks. And uh, their home is sold, and they've closed there. She said they're officially homeless right now. Um, So they're headed that way. And I know that Sandy's had an impact in many of your lives. And I want to encourage you um, with two things. One, let her know that. Okay? Let John and Sandy know that, how much you've appreciated them. And secondly, in a few weeks or a few months, tell them again. Because they're going to be down there in Florida. And they're go- it's, you know it's hard to move. We want to be encouraged to them again in a few weeks and months. And so reach out to John and Sandy. And um, I'm just speaking for all of us that God has used you and I'm thankful that he did. Um, it does bring up another reality in a church. And that is that the Lord has called us to make disciples. And one of the female disciple makers of our church is going to another place. And so who is the lady here who will step up and disciple the women of our church? You're called to do that. In Titus 2, you're called to teach the other women, the younger women, to love their husbands and love their children. And then there's a whole description given for how... You are supposed to impact the other women of our church that they would live for Christ. Now, God has worked in Sandy and John's life, but he wants to keep working here. And so maybe that person is you. Well, Brock asked you to think about an impossible situation, okay? And we, we just sang a song that sang about our possible God, that God is mighty to save. And God does do miraculous things in our lives. God does things. He allows us to breathe every day. He works miracles in our life and in every day in in many different ways. And usually if we were to say, you know, what's something that you're trusting God for that only God can do? You know, we bring up all kinds of things. They might center around our career. It might center around our home. It might center around things of, of this world. And certainly God does step into our world and act. But what I want to look at today I want us to focus our attention on the greatest miracle that God ever does. And if we aren't careful, it can reduce in its significance in our mind. And that would be a horrible disservice to our God and to the reality of our being, who we are. Because here's the truth. Let me tell you the the cold, hard truth. From the word of God. None is righteous. No, not one. Romans 3. Listen to the book of Romans describe us before we were in Christ. Describe people that you know, who you love, who you work with, who are in your family, who are in your life. Listen to the word of God. Describe them. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. 
Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We are a nasty, lost people. The curse of sin has had great effect in our lives. And because of the curse that sin brought through the hand of God into our lives, no one ever seeks God on their own. So Romans 3 has gone to great length to tell us. And so when that spark happens in your heart, it is a divine spark, but it's not the divine spark of your heart. It's the divine spark of God's heart. When God lights us on fire and we move towards Him, that is the Lord working. Listen to what Romans says. These people, their throat, us, before Jesus, is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. Listen to the last phrase in Romans 3. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You say, Lord, what's the greatest possible thing that you want to see happen this spring? Now, we tricked you into answering, you know, plant a garden, put a roof on. Okay, we did that to you on purpose. But in reality, the greatest impossibility that may happen is God working a heart. And a person make a decision. To put their trust in Jesus Christ. And to be made a new creature. And I look back on my short number of years. And I've seen God do some pretty incredible things. Some pretty neat things. Now small on that list are things like, you know, miraculous details of my life that have happened. You know, you're not expecting something and it just occurs. You're like, wow, that's really neat. That's small. Big on my list are people, individuals that I knew and that I loved. And I wanted to see them come to know Jesus. And they wanted nothing to do with God. They laughed at me because I believed on Jesus. And they poked fun at me, and they were, I mean, they were funny, but it hurt. And I can think of a few of these cases where over time, over years now, over years of waiting to see a person come to Christ, and one day, they do. And it's a miracle. It's a miracle. I've told you about some of the stories before. Some of you haven't heard them. It's one of the problems with having the same guy that preaches every Sunday. You hear some of the same stories over and over and over, but the hero of these is God. I had a guy that I worked with. He didn't only hate Jesus, he hated me because I loved Jesus. And he came to know that. He laughed at me, he told jokes at my expense. And it hurt. 
And God, in his plan, moved us away from each other. All right? Work situations change. Life, life happens. And one day, that very man tracked me down, went out of his way to find me, came to my door and said, I'm dying of cancer. Tell me about Jesus. Can I tell you that guy's with Christ today? He's with Jesus today. Listen, that's a miracle. God parts Red Seas, okay? That happens. But the miracle that we can see every day, and the miracle that we can remember every day, is that God opened your eyes to the truth of the gospel. Let's look at another account of that. Open up your Bible to Luke chapter 23. We've been walking through the gospel of Luke, and we're going to continue that for a few more weeks, and then we'll be finished. Luke chapter 23. We're going to see Jesus on the cross now. And while Jesus is hanging on the cross, darkness is descending on the earth, and the Son of God is getting ready to let go of His life. And He is right now purchasing our redemption. He is dying in our place. And in the midst of this sacrifice, in the midst of this moment, we see these characters step up into the drama that's right there before our eyes. And we see the work of God, and we see the perception of man, how man cannot understand a Savior. How this on our own now, before Christ, we cannot fathom a real Savior. But once in a while, God does. Let's jump in here at verse number 32 and read. Some of this we talked about last week, but we're going to get the whole context of chapter 23, verse 32. It says this. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. And when it came to a place that is called the skull, because it's a rock formation that looks like a human skull, there they crucified him and the criminals. One on his right side, one on his left. For sure, this is another stab of mockery against the one that they are killing because he claimed to be the Messiah. He's numbered with the transgressors. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, he is there on the cross. He is in pain. And he cries out those words. Father, he prays, forgive them. And there's an audience that hears those words. And that audience includes the criminal on his left and the criminal on his right. Now, the soldiers cast lots and divided his garments, and the people stood by and they watched and the rulers, this would be the religious rulers of the day, they scoffed at him and they said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, and I guarantee you they laughed. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up, offering him sour wine, another form of mockery. A king would have wine. They brought sour wine to mock him. They put a crown of thorns on him. They put that robe upon him. They 
They would slap you and say, prophesy. That's just a whole big game to them. It's a comedy act there. They continue that. And they said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This was demanded by Pilate. I think this is actually a mockery of the Jewish leaders. Pilate here is now going to demand that truth is proclaimed. I believe he's doing it honestly to mock the religious leaders. And the sign said, this is the king of the Jews. Many a truth is told in jest. It is indeed the king. One of the criminals who were hanging, who hang there, that is railed at him and said, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him and said, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, and he said to Jesus, Jesus, Remember me when I come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now let's start with the sinful men that are standing around. The Roman soldiers, the Jewish leaders, the thieves on the cross. And let's see this expectation of a Savior. Let's see now through their eyes what it is that a Savior does. And we need to understand, this is what everybody thinks when we say that Jesus is our Savior. This is the message they think that we are offering. I want you to see that the people around watching Jesus being crucified, those who are responsible for it, they cry out to him and they reveal what man really wants. Man naturally wants what they ask for, but no man naturally wants God. They say, save yourself. If you are the Christ, save yourself, God. I mean, anybody would do that. Save yourself. They cannot fathom that the God, the King of the Jews, would lay his life down for somebody else. That kind of sacrifice is just inconceivable to the human mind on their own. Jesus understood this. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus said this. The kings of the Gentiles... So here's how Gentile, this is worldly Gentile leaders, here's how they operate. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over their people. And those in authority over them are called, now listen to this word, benefactors. Jesus is saying this. When you look at kings of the world, when you look at a worldly king, It's all about them. And I'm the benefactor. If I'm the boss, if I'm the leader, if I'm the father, if I'm the king, then you all serve me and meet my needs. That's what they expected of a savior. That's what they expected of a king. Save yourself. So you got the you got the Jewish leaders, you got the Roman soldiers, you got the thieves on the cross saying that. Come on, be a king. Save yourself. And then the second thing that the world just expects 
If you're not going to save yourself, at least save me. Save me, they say. The thieves now are crying out and saying, save us, verse number 39. One of the criminals, now Matthew actually tells us that it started out, both of them. Both of them. That is significant. Matthew 27 says, also identifies them as thieves. Luke says they're criminals. Matthew gives more information, says they're thieves. And both of them now are there on the cross, screaming, mocking Jesus. Both of them. And saying, save us! And that's our concept of a savior. Take care of me. Take care of the most important thing in all of creation. Me. They could not fathom what Jesus was doing. Oh, he was caring for them. But in order to care for them, in order to save them, he had to deal with the greatest problem that any person has. The sin problem. Your greatest problem is not that you're going to die. Man's greatest problem is not that he's going to die. It's not cancer. It's not AIDS. It's not the political position that you don't like. Man's greatest problem is sin. And they couldn't fathom that. But God did a miracle. I want you to see now what's going to happen. Both thieves crying out against Jesus. The word that that Luke uses here for these two thieves, same word that Jesus used for the robber that jumped the the guy that was beat up and the good Samaritan helped him. Remember that? There's a guy walking along the street, walking along the road, and a guy jumps out, a highwayman, a robber, and beats him up. Same word for what these guys are. You need to know that these two thieves in the Jewish religion mindset of the day, were unreachable. These guys are completely outside of the reach of God. This is the prodigal son grown up and now receiving the due penalty for his life. To Jesus' left, to Jesus' right, is the prodigal son grown up and getting his due penalty. And in the religious mindset of the day, he fully deserves everything that he's getting. And beyond that, he fully deserves eternity in hell. Send him to hell, that's what he deserves, and he's unreachable. That's these two thieves, these two criminals, now hanging naked for everyone to watch them die a wicked death. And I guarantee you, the religious teachers of the day said, That's right. Now send them to hell, please. They loved it. But one of them grew very quiet. He grew very quiet. Because God did a miracle in his heart. 
And in that instant, the Spirit of God came to this man in an act of grace contained, wrapped up in the act of grace. God shows us He's working in a man's heart. And He's with Jesus today. In these few sentences that this criminal shared, we see the marks of the Spirit of God working. We see the evidence of God at work. We see a miracle that only God can do. Let me show it to you. It's so exciting to see. So we start out now with these words of this, of this man. I don't know what his name is. Jesus does. He's there, between, he's there on one side of Jesus, left or right. I don't know. But he begins to talk here. In verse number 40, the other rebuked the other thief. This is a strong word and it, it has a lot of emotion in it. He's now angered by what he is hearing. He's now angered at what he was saying himself. And he rebukes him. How dare you? How can you say this about him? Because God did a work in his heart. And I want you to see what that work is. First of all, we're going to see repentance over sin. Look what he says. Do you not fear God? Prior to this moment, there was no fear of God in this man's life. There was no fear of anyone. He's rallying against God himself. And now he speaks to this other and says, don't you fear God? Do you not fear God? Romans 3.18 said this, that outside of Christ, people do not fear God. When God works in a life, when God steps into a life and, and starts to kindle that flame of a person's spirit, the first thing he does is he brings the fear of God. Yes, God is one for us to fear. Now, I know that we proclaim a message of grace, we proclaim a message of forgiveness and mercy, but we cannot diminish the fact that we as creatures should fear God and fear what He could do to us and fear where we could spend eternity. I know when I got saved, I was fearing God because God worked in my heart. He says, do you not fear God. And then he says this. Since you and I are under the same condemnation and we indeed justly. See what he did? This is repentance. Repentance is this. He looked to God and said, don't you fear him? And then he looked to himself. And he said, I do. I should. He is admitting, he is confessing. That's the word. He is confessing his sin. He is agreeing with God about his sin. And he's saying, I am hanging here dying for crimes and it is just. It is right. 
He gives no excuses. He's not telling us what his mother did to him. He's not talking about his neighbor and how difficult they were. He doesn't bring up the church and how difficult it was to him or the religious leaders and how horrible they were and how he was really, really needed this and needed that and his boss didn't. No, no, no. His crimes are his responsibility and he confesses it. And that is a work of God. These are evidences that God is working in his life. Repentance, fear of God, confession of his own sin. And then it moves on. He says this, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, first we had repentance. He's repenting of his sin. But that is not enough. You've seen this illustration. This is repentance, okay? He's fearing God. He sees himself and he's convicted by it. And repentance means a turn. It means a turn. But if all he turns to is good works or the Jewish system, or any other system other than Jesus, he just sits down right there unchanged and dies into a Christless eternity. But that's not what he does. He says, Jesus, he's speaking now to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's already said Jesus has done nothing wrong. He's already saying Jesus has done nothing wrong. So he understands the righteousness of Christ. He understands who this is that's dying there. He says, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, he's now expressing a deity. He believes that Jesus is God because he owns the kingdom. It is his kingdom that he is coming into. And he says, when you go into that kingdom, remember me. You don't get out of crucifixion other than death. There's no off-ramp from the cross other than death. So what is he saying? When you come into your kingdom, not when you spiritually arrive there, when you you advance to another stage, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. He's saying, I know you're going to come back. Death is not the end for you. Because you are God. Repentance over sin, faith in Christ. And it doesn't end there. When you come into your kingdom. So we have repentance. We have him turning to Christ. So he sees God, sees himself, turns, looks to Jesus. Puts his trust there. And look at the hope that he has. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. There is a hope here of resurrection. There's a hope here of life. This is the hope of the gospel. And the thing that we've got to understand is none of this happens, none of it, apart from God working in a heart. No one seeks after God on his own. It's it's an amazing miracle on the cross that God in eternity 
past, before the foundations of the earth, decided that this man would put his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see the fruit. Repentance. Belief. Hope. It's interesting to me, you know, a lot of times when I preach on something, one of the things that I'll do is I'll go to, you know, that great repository of information, Google, and Google it, you know, just to see what comes up. I do that all the time. And so uh, I Googled Thief on the Cross. Boy, this was interesting. Now, I didn't count, but I know it was at least the full page of Google responses. And then some on the next page, too. Were all people from different sort of religious backgrounds trying to tell the reader that this doesn't mean what the plain reading of Scripture means. Now, there's a warning there, by the way. Scripture is understandable. It is very clear to me that Jesus said, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. I read one lost man from a very popular denomination who tried to tell me in this blog article that Jesus wasn't really saying he was going to be in paradise. No, that's not what Jesus meant. Oh, you think he said, let me explain it to you. And then he goes through like, you know, 12 paragraphs telling me that it doesn't mean today you'll be living in paradise. You see, if these thinkings, if these worldviews, if these religions were right, Jesus would have said this. When he said, remember, me in, remember when you go to your kingdom, he would have said, well, thief, you need to take communion. You need to be baptized. You need to go to confirmation class. That's what you need to do. That's what the Catholics would say. The Roman Catholics would say, at this point, this man would need to be baptized. He'd need to be a member of the church. He'd need to be good. And then he still wouldn't know. You say, oh, I don't really believe that. Let me read to you the Catholic prayer to the glorious Saint Dismas. You say, who's Dismas? That's who they've named this guy. Somehow they figured out his name. They don't know his name, okay? But they've made him a saint. Listen to the prayer of the, to the saint of the thief of the cross. Listen to this and hear the gospel not there. Oh, you alone of all the great saints were directly canonized by Christ himself. You were assured a place in heaven with him this day because of the sincere confession of your sins in the tribunal of Calvary and true sorrow for them as you hung beside him in that open confessional. You who by the direct sword thrust of your love and repentance did open the heart of Jesus in mercy and forgiveness even before the spear tore it asunder. You whose face was closer to that of Jesus in his last agony to offer him a word of comfort closer even than that of his blessed Blessed Mother Mary, you who knew so well how to pray, teach me the words to say to him 
that I might gain pardon, that I might know one day, this day, thou shalt be with him in paradise. O saint, teach me that I could pray that prayer. Do you see where they're going? There's no hope of life. There's no hope of forgiveness. There's hope of the little sort of magic rabbit's foot that i got to grab. The Mormon would say to this thief, you're going to have to be good. You're going to have to go to the church. You're going to have to be part of the Mormon church. The Muslim would say to this thief, I'm sorry, it is Allah's will that you suffer. The Buddhist would say to this thief, Oh, maybe you will be reincarnated further along the noble path. The Hindu would say to this thief, You deserve, karma has given you what you deserve. Maybe you'll be reincarnated at a higher state. The only one, the only one who will say to the thief, Today, you will be with me in paradise is the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Why? Because God sparked his heart. And a man feared God. Confessed his own unrighteousness before the Lord. Looked to the Son, Jesus Christ. And believed on his righteousness. And boom, he had eternal life. This happened in your life? Will you celebrate it with me? We can't let this moment pass. You need to put your trust in Jesus. Do that today. See, I don't know how. Just cry out from your heart. You don't need some magical word. I don't need to give you the prayer of Saint, whatever his name is. You just do like the thief. Say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I deserve punishment. But I look to your son, Jesus Christ. I believe on you. Now that's, that's the truth for us. But we're the church. I suspect most of you have put your trust already in Christ. It's already there. So why do we look at this? Because we want to remember, and we want to celebrate, and we want to worship. Because God did a miracle in our hearts. I'm going to let the praise team come up here and lead us in the song of praise to the Lord for that work. As they move up here, though, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your work. I thank you for your saving grace that stepped into a life that didn't want you, Lord that was running from you, that wanted nothing to do with you, didn't want your righteousness, didn't want your lordship, didn't want you at all. And that man was me. Thank you, Lord, for saving a sinner like us. We are the thieves on the cross. God, we thank you for your grace. I thank you the Lamb of God went to a cross that he didn't deserve for people who could never deserve it and gave us life.
pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.